last six or seven years, I've started a tradition. With my family, at the end of every year, I put together a family slideshow for us to watch. And remember everything that happened that year, or at least the highlights. It's a great reminder of the fun, enjoyable things that we were a part of, the events we attended, the times that we got together with the family, trips, retreats, whatever. Uh, when we celebrated someone in the family's success, whether it was a guitar recital, a chorus concert, a driver's license, sports championship, some of the highlights recently. And it's amazing how many details from the year that we live I've already forgotten. Or forgotten that they happened in January of last year. And so it's really uh, fun to look back and remember. Now we used to compile scrapbooks, but these are all digital now. And it's especially sweet to look back at years past because I kept them on my computer. Just remember the details of each year. Of course, not everything that happens in a year is a celebration. Right? Not every memory is sweet, even though the slideshow can give us the illusion that we had this long string of happy times. Right? We don't normally take, at least my family doesn't, I don't know about yours, we don't really take pictures of the arguments and the tension and the hard times and or the double times and when everyone's sitting on the couch just looking at the That doesn't show up in the slideshow. We don't try to capture those. And I wonder as we look back at the years that James started through I wonder as you look back at the year that just happened, how do we think through those ups and downs, those highs and lows of our lives? As we, as we look back and we see the happy times, the successes, and say, oh, that was the Lord's hand of blessing on me. That was the Lord really working at the God thing. But then we look at the problems and the difficulties, the dark times, the arguments that never, maybe never got resolved, the pain and trials. What do we chalk those up to? Did God abandon us during that time? Did, was he punishing us? Do we doubt his presence in those things? We come to Psalm 118, uh, the fifth psalm in our Advent in the Psalms series. We'll get back to the Gospel of Mark next week. We're not sure who wrote the psalm, possibly David or one of the other kings, maybe Solomon, maybe a, a leader in the army or a priest. Uh, it may be a psalm that was used in worship, particularly in part of processionals. Festivals, and there's a bit of a feeling of a call and response. And so there are individual uh, expressions in it, and personal reflections, as well as corporate proclamations that the nation and people share together. That makes it very appropriate for our church in our lives. 
Regardless of its author or its intended use, Psalm 118 is a great psalm to read and reflect on at the end of the year. It's a psalm that looks back and sees God's mighty hand active in a life or in corporate life that has seen both sweet victories and hard trials, perhaps like our own lives. There's a lot more sprinkled in the psalm, ideas that get picked up by New Testament writers in explaining God's enduring salvation works. I'm going to look at a lot of those. But before we do, let's take a moment to pray. Almighty, eternal, and merciful God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our hands. Open and illuminate our minds so that we may purely and better understand your word. And that our lives may be conformed to what we have understood through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is a long psalm. Uh, not as long as the one right after it, Psalm 119, along with in the Bible. But I don't, I'm not going to read it and then turn to and read it again. Let's just read it through and, and pause every section as we examine it. And actually, uh, for the first part, I want to start with the first four verses and jump to the last two. So if you're not following along, if you're following along in the sermon outline, it's all in there, but you're going to have to jump back and forth and just have your Bible with you. So let's read the first four verses in 28-29. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. And then down to 28. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The beginning and the end of this psalm make bookends. Do people still use bookends? Decorated people, uh, you know, when they go out of church office, there's not an inch of bookshelf space that's not being used, so we don't have room to book in. So if you've got a nice shelf on the center of this whole book there, let's look at it. And so, this, these, uh, this phrase, the steadfast love, God's steadfast love endures forever, frames this whole song. Beginning to end, his steadfast love is extended. Now, obviously, there's 23 verses in between. There's a lot going on. We'll get to that. But what a beautiful reminder that at the beginning and at the end, God's love is there. He is Alpha and Omega, beginning and end of all things, and where God is, His love is as well. The Hebrew word for steadfast love is one word, Esed, uh, we've preached on this several times. Uh, I know that if you've been in Sunday school classes where we talk about the Psalms, you're familiar with this, but uh, I'm sure there are some who have not heard this. It. And it's never a bad thing to remind ourselves 
of deep truth. Chesed is a very complex word. Um, it's hard to define exactly. Uh, it describes the covenant love of God. And at the same time, unconditional, unearned, as well as being inexhaustible and unfailing. When we preach through Jeremiah 33, remember, remember I, I read Michael Carr's definition of the book recently called Inexpressible. And his definition is when the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. That is steadfast love. Which sounds a lot like the Greek, the New Testament equivalent of agape unconditional love, as well as our concept of grace, what we don't deserve, what we can't expect. God gives us anyway. He doesn't give it back to us. I don't want to dive too deep just yet. We'll come back to some of these concepts. But as we understand how amazing and true his love is, we should exhort one another, as the psalmist does, give thanks for that. It is not just a head nod, it is something we embrace and are excited about. Let all Israel, he says, let the tribe of Aaron, let all those who fear the Lord and all of all who worship here say, is steadfastly adore forever. As I implied in the introduction, and no, that's easy to say when things go your way, but how about when life knocks you around and it's bound to happen? Verses 5 through 8. Reminds us that God's steadfast love helps us endure hard things. Difficult. Verses 5 through 18. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among the thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard. So that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over death. So particularly verse 5, and then verse 10 through 13, describe how this person, the psalm writer, had experienced 
God's deliverance from being trapped by his enemies. The Lord did deliver him. The repeated phrase, in the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The Lord is on his side. He has taken refuge in him. He knows that's the best place to be. Trust in the Lord, not men. He's a powerful man. It's a great reminder here. I think I see a theme here that even as the psalmist takes action to defeat his enemies, right? He doesn't just surrender. He fights. He, I cut them off. Said several times. That is still he describes that as the Lord's work. The Lord is the temple. The Lord has set him free with his salvation. There's also the understanding, particularly expressed in verse 18. That God is using the events of his life, the difficulties and trials, to discipline him, to shape him. In my college and young adult Sunday school class, we are going through the book of 1 Peter. And that concept is all over 1 Peter. The trials and suffering that believers experience, those things are given by the hand of God. So you look at 1 Peter 3, 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. I think I've forgotten your sermon outline is exactly the reference for the next one, but 1 Peter 4, 19. Let those who suffer according to God's will, and trust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What a beautiful reminder that it is God's will. Something that's a hard reminder. But it's not our trials, our sufferings, do not take God by surprise. He has designed them. Allow them to receive our trials as ordained and given by the hand of God to both test us and refine our character. Are we so wrapped up in just trying to get out of these difficulties that we don't look for what he's trying to teach us in the midst of it? And very few of us know anything about actual warfare being in the midst of battle, like the psalmist is probably describing. But I think we all know conflict. We all have enemies, even if they're not trying to kill you with enemies. We have all experienced dangers. People trying to take advantage of us. Pain from being bullied or being mocked. I had a conversation with a former member of our church who works in downtown D.C. And he said that he had to ask his company if he could work from home because his co-workers just relentlessly anti-religious. And so he and a fellow Muslim worker don't feel like they can even get their jobs done when they're there. They feel under attack. And every life has some set of trials and pain that may not describe you. But you know there are difficulties. James 1, 2 through 4 reminds us of our response 
to be distinguished. all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God builds up, builds our characters through these things. Again, easier to say, harder to live out. When God delivers his people, they should respond. And so verses 19 through 27 remind us that God's steadfast love leads us to worship and rejoice. Let's read those verses. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us, bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. There's a lot in these verses, and we're going to save some of it for later. Uh, but what we see predominantly here is worship imagery, and what kind of procession of the people entering the gates of the Lord, verses 19 and 20, and the reference to the house of the Lord, 26, and the sacrifices and the, the horns of the altar, in 27. And so what I see is a yearning to go and worship the Lord, to be given salvation, to be given the promises and blessings of God. And it sounds like there's one condition that you have to meet in order to be left through the gates, to be admitted to the sanctuary, the place of worship of God. You have to be righteous. See, verse 19 says the gate of righteousness. Verse 20 says, the righteous shall enter. So you may be reading that. And I read it, and we think to ourselves, well, I guess that leaves me now. I know there's some people that must fit that description, but not me. I'm not righteous. I am sinful. I know the things I think about. I know the things I've done. There's no way I measure up to God's standard and be allowed to pass through those gates. I hope there's a side entrance or back door, some other way. I can slip through one of those. And if that's the way you're thinking, you're absolutely right. You are not righteous. You do not qualify on your own merit. In fact, if you read those words and said, Oh, good. Here's the passage about the righteous people and where they get to go. That's me. I'm one of the privileged people. But God will usher in there. 
And I'm not sure you understand a whole lot about the Bible teaches about our sinfulness, about our natural spiritual state of depravity and need. We are born under the curse of Adam, and we crave our own way from birth. We crave the things of the flesh. We fall short of God's standard in His glory. Righteousness is righteousness is not something you have. It is something that you are given. Because what does it say in verse 21, right after this verse about the gate? I thank you, you have answered me and have become my salvation. And then verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. Verse 25, save us, we pray, O Lord. Those are the words of someone who recognizes that they can't do it, that they can't save themselves. And the New Testament, of course, makes this more explicit. It tells us that the righteousness comes through Jesus, who lived the perfect life, the only perfect life, and died in our place to give us his righteousness. Hebrews 10, 19 and 20 makes it very clear. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. This church is a bunch of sinners who come together weekly to celebrate and worship, knowing that we are acceptable in God's sight only because he has given us the righteousness of Christ. Now there's way more that I could have said about this psalm, just working our way through it. But I want to look at how the New Testament writers pick out verses and themes and ideas from it and apply them to what happened in their day, particularly as they related to Jesus and his ministry. Someone familiar with the New Testament, uh, as you read through this, I'm sure, just recognized these phrases that jump out of Psalm 19. Because it's a psalm that can walk us to the cross. Some of these links, I want to talk through them, uh, are explicit, some of them are more vague. The following is we work our way through the final week of Jesus' life using the words of this psalm. And this is very helpful you have your sermon outline that you follow. Uh, but let's start with Palm Sunday. Right, the Sunday before Jesus was crucified on Thursday, where the crowd that witnessed Jesus entering Jerusalem shouted. Mark 11, 9 says, they said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Where did they get those words? Well, 25 and 26. Save us, we pray, O Lord. That's what Hosanna means. Save us. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Another reason why it's most likely was used in processions and festivals. The crowd, the Jewish people knew these words, and they recognized something about Jesus' majesty, his being the Messiah, the coming king, that they would 
spoke these words together as he entered. Later in the week, we moved to Thursday, what we call Monday Thursday, and the Last Supper, which began with Jesus celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. They observed what every Jewish family would have been observing, and observed once a year. And part of the Passover liturgy was reciting or singing a series of five psalms. Psalms 113, 114, 115. I don't know how to get 116, uh, 117, 118. And so we read in the Gospels, such as Matthew 26, 30, that Jesus and his disciples sang a hymn and then went out to the garden at the end of the summer. And so we know fairly certainly, even though Matthew doesn't say it, none of the Gospel writers have recorded exactly. But they sang Psalm 118 because it was the last one in the literature. So essentially, this is the last psalm that Jesus shared with his disciples before his betrayal, arrest, trial, and crucifixion. So we know that they sang a hymn, and then where did they go? The Garden of Gethsemane. Where Jesus prays intensely to the Father about what's coming up, his upcoming crucifixion, sweating drops of blood. And so I see an echo of verse 9 here. Out of my distress, I call on the Lord. And then came Judas and the soldiers in his arrest. Verse 12, they surrounded him. And after his trial, or after his arrest and trial, Jesus is sent to death unjustly. But it's a fulfillment of verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Peter explains this very explicitly as he's preaching in Acts 4, 8-12. And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you, the people of Israel, by the, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. The New Testament, starting with Jesus himself, Jesus referenced that he was going to be a cornerstone, rejected. And at the end of that, the Pharisees, it says, the Pharisees knew he was talking about that. And then our responsive reading was in 1 Peter. And also quoted this verse. So the New Testament sees the stone the builders rejected as specifically referring to Jesus. Jesus came to become the foundation and the main part of the building of the full revelation of God's saving work. But the people of Israel, the people that were God's chosen people, not all, some came into 
that early church. But God's people, Jerusalem, rejected him by arresting him, convicting him of blasphemy, and putting him to death. But God used that act of crucifixion of his only son, the God-man, to accomplish salvation for his people. The fact that Jesus' death provides the way for us to be reconciled with God makes him the cornerstone of our faith. There is no Christianity, there is no Christian church, there is no salvation without the absolutely foundational recognition that God, Jesus accomplished it on the cross. Just as a building would collapse or be unsteady without its capstone or its cornerstone, so Christianity comes crashing down if it's not built on that truth. So after Jesus is sentenced, he's led to the cross and crucified. Verse 27. That bind the festival sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. This is what essentially happens to Jesus. He was the once for all sacrifice for our sins. He's the new Passover. Sacrifice for the sins of the people. That God paid the penalty for our sins, making us righteous, as we talked about earlier. Of course, the grave could not hold him. So on the third day, he rose. Verses 17 and 18, you hear an echo of that. I shall not die, but I shall live. And recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord had disciplined severely, but had not given me over to death. And then one more verse. You know, in verse 14, the Lord is my strength. And my song, he has become my salvation. You know where that was first said? That is part of Moses' song in Exodus 15. The words of victory after God brought the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And they came through the Red Sea. And they're standing on the other side watching God destroy their enemies. Jesus accomplished the new exodus, the new redemption in bringing his people out of slavery and destroying our enemies. <clears throat> now, our dear friend, Captain Pugh, who's here, who's sitting there, she's tells us that she has a theme word for every year. So she told me a couple of the recent ones have been hope for joy. And she reflects on that word. She looks up all of the ways she goes to a concordance and stuff that verses, ways that she uses in the scriptures, and she puts it on the mantle. And she comes back to it all year long. In the Dorsey family, this upcoming year, our word is going to be trust. Marty and It's going to be a big year of change as we move to Delaware. As is already mentioned, where I will begin pastoring. The church there, and uh, you know my time frame on leaving in March, the family will join me in June. Uh, so as we sell our house and line up a new house, as we finish school here and register for classes there, as Wesley finishes high school and he's accepted to a college and goes there, 
as we leave a wonderful church family that has embraced us and loved us for 18 years and go to a church family that we're very nice and you know. We are clinging to that word of trust. We are trusting that God has called us to this work. We're trusting that he's been more than faithful in the past and that he has gone before us and will be faithful in the future. We are trusting that our lives are bookended by his steadfast love that endures forever. He will meet us with that steadfast love. We pray with the psalmist, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. The Lord is my strength and my song. The right hand of the Lord does that with me. This sermon, this text, and especially God's steadfast love is not just promises for my family. It is for you and your family and your circumstances and your future as well. We started the sermon looking back. How do we look back and examine our lives and think through what God has done? Now I want to ask you to look forward to the new year and to what God has planned for you. Will you trust God's steadfast love to bring you through whatever life throws your way? Will He guide you and protect you and deliver you even if you experience pain, loss, and trial? Will you acknowledge His saving hand and give Him thanks for what He's accomplished? Particularly through Christ's saving work on your behalf. Let's spend some time between now and New Year's before school starts again or go back to work. Think through God's wonderful blessings in your life. And all those who believe that God's steadfast love endures forever today. Take a moment to reflect on these things in prayer. Know our lives. Numbered our days. You know what we've come through, what we've experienced, and you know what we will go through. For these all things that will come to pass. The Lord, thank you for this reminder in Psalm 118. And you walk with us, and you deliver us, and you are active, your mighty hand works down in place. And you are our strength. Our salvation. God, you have opened the gates of righteousness, not because we are righteous, but because Christ's righteousness is given to us and accepted through faith. Thank you that you have blessed us spiritually. And we give thanks for our spiritual physical blessings. Remind us of these things, and of the trials and the difficulties. Now, when our enemies surround us, we are going to have no hope. We have all hope that you 
were great sovereign Yes, every time we come to your word, we see the picture of the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Stay. Colossians 3, 15, 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Whatever you do, in word, you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father.